1: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: Hello. Hello. Well, welcome to the first of our summer specials. I think. Thank you. In, in previous years, what we've done during the summer is we've saved up some of the live episodes that we've recorded. Now, obviously, um, because of lockdown, we haven't done any live episodes for these past few months. So we thought we'd do something a bit different. And for the next four weeks, you're going to be able to hear... Extended chats with people we were just interested to talk to. Um, so coming up, you will hear Alistair Campbell, who is going to be talking about uh, a, a new autobiography, kind of about his mental health that he's written. That's that's very good indeed, and he speaks in a really interesting and engaging way about this. You're going to be hearing uh, from a really interesting author called Wendy Liu, who was the founder of a tech startup and now wants us to abolish silicon valley one that you've already had sort of a sneak preview of is lem sisse an amazing a tease yeah you've had a little tease uh, he's, he's an amazing poet and um we had a long chat with him about his story about being in having his name taken away being taken away from his mother and his subsequent you know decades of of trying to make sense of his own life and his own story and and he's so brilliant so you'll be able to hear And we just thought it was such a good conversation didn't we yeah we thought it merited a summer episode yeah yeah the sort of 10 minutes you heard on the the podcast wasn't enough um and this week we are starting with comedian sarah pascoe who is somewhat of the polymath i think she's a brilliant stand-up um She also has uh, a new program, a sitcom, coming out on, I think, the BBC later this year. Uh, Her last book was called Animal, the Autobiography of a Female Body, and she has uh, a new one. It came out a few months ago. It's now out in paperback. It's called Sex, Power, Money. And I sat down... To have uh, a, a good old conversation with Sarah about the book and everything else.
1: You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Milliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: Sarah Pasco, hello. Hello. Well, welcome back. It occurred to me that you were pretty well, fairly much the first comedian we had on the podcast. When we started, I, th- I think you were the top of our list and then we thought we'd better just try it a couple of times so we don't waste Sarah's time. But as, as soon as we realised it was passable, you, you know, you, you were there, you were first on our wish list. So it's lovely to have you back.
3: It's lovely to be back.
2: Well, as you can see, Ed isn't here.
3: Oh, have you sacked Ed? Have you fallen out like the Beatles? You've gone solo.
2: Yeah, we just paste his bits in uh, separately. Yeah. We can't be in the same room together. Is
3: he in your bubble? or oh, no.
2: no i I tried to i tried to broach the subject with him
3: Mm.
2: um but he he managed to shut it down in that politician kind of way quite quickly he was having none of it yeah (laughs) Did, did you have the experience of inviting somebody to be in your bubble
3: what i've had actually which is why i asked is a couple of work things because people are starting to film again and they're doing it in a very very careful way um, so I've had people ask me if another what well, not another if a celebrity is by any chance in my bubble, like hi, we'd love to have you on this BBC One show. Da da da. I don't suppose Chesney Hawkes is in your bubble, <laughs> and then you'd go, uh, no, actually, w- would you mind? Because actually, if you do two weeks, you can change who's in your bubble, and like they have these like, and it's like for for their rules.
2: You have a format there. You could pitch celebrity bubbles
3: do you know what also because work is so low on the ground people would say yes people would say yes to that i'm gonna pitch it
2: i know you you mentioned work and and you've been recording a a new series out of her mind is is it a sitcom or, or is it a dramedy
3: it's a sitcom it's a it's very much a sitcom and um uh, but we, we'd finished filming before the lockdown. So we'd finished at the end of January. So we were in what they call post-production, which meant I wasn't really involved. And then that had to all then be done from everyone's homes by themselves. So it's taken a bit longer, but it could happen. So we're really lucky.
2: Yeah, yeah and really, because a lot of people had started filming things. I
3: was going to say, Tim Key has just, what they, they'd filmed, it's the, it's the guys who wrote, I think the Gibbon brothers who wrote Alan Partridge. So they've written this amazing series like about the Witchfinder General and Tim Key's the main part. They filmed one day and then it, and then got shut down. <laughs> and that just must be so frustrating.
2: How awful! I wonder yeah. if we're going to see these shows where people have sort of ravaged There's continuity aid, uh, errors, where yeah. people are ravaged also, by age,
3: and or just put on loads of weight. Like I've put on a lot of weight in lockdown, like walking twelve steps a day and everything. <laughs> and um, I, and I think that that's what will be funny with continuity if they start filming again and people are two stone heavier. <laughs>
2: We're going to talk about the book mainly today which is uh, Sex Power Money. I think it about it came out in hardback like a year ago at this point. I can't quite remember. Yeah,
3: exactly a year ago.
2: For people who've managed to it's managed to elude them so far. Do you just want to yeah, tell us...
3: Were, were, were you careful how you were phrasing that? <laughs> people who didn't want to read it when it was a hardback and £12. Why might they want to read it now it's £8? <laughs> I'll I, I tell you, I do a yeah. lot
2: of my reading in the horizontal position and I find it yeah. difficult to read a hardback
3: oh, whilst absolutely. lying down. Jeff. what I hate is how... Hardbacks don't fit nicely with your other books on a shelf. Yes, so they end up clustering them together. And um, sometimes now, I'm very lucky. I get sometimes sent people's books before they're released, and they're the weirdest sizes. And I love the book, and then I think I'm going to have to buy it again when it's a reasonable size.
2: That's why they do it.
3: Yeah, that's why they do it because they get you twice. Yeah. <laughs> they get you twice with the book size.
2: So, so, so it's a paperback. We know, we know it's coming out in paperback. Very, very yes. readable. Um,
3: yeah oh, yeah, <laughs> very readable, perfect shape it's going to fit in the pocket of your rucksack nicely <laughs>
2: um so so for people who who uh, haven't read it so far, yeah uh, like what is it, and why did you write it
3: well, so um jeff, we when we spoke before all that time ago it was about my first book, and actually this book really. Really came out of it because in my first book I was researching the female body, how it's treated in culture, and I was planning to write a chapter on pornography in that book. And I th- and what I'd plotted out for that chapter was, oh, I'll watch a couple of pornographies, I'll talk about the fetishisation of the female body, I'll talk about how it may be damaging for women's self esteem. Da da da. So I started writing that chapter. And what I found out was I know absolutely nothing about porn. I hadn't watched it. Everything I thought I knew was from feminism. And then I realised this is far bigger than a chapter. I can't just slot this in. I'm not right. Also, I had these kind of understandings like, oh, porn just shows all of this perfect type of female body. And then when I watched it, I realised that's not true at all, that there's an actual there's a lot of diversity in pornography and all of the body shapes so then i was like oh it's so much more complicated than i realized and so that's what sex power money is it's me going into the very complicated areas where i think i'd got to my mid to late 30s with lots of assumptions about things and and, and and not just assumptions as in strong opinions based on assumptions that were wrong so i researched sex work and pornography and it's not a polemic and it's not um like a feminist book in like it's a feminist argument. In lots of ways, it's not very feminist because I'm not kind of towing the party line with some of the things that I discovered. But yeah, that's what it is. It's about porn and sex work, which is why you haven't seen me much on the BBC promoting it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I want to get into some of those those specific areas that you cover in in a a little while and and porn will be one of them. But just as you were talking then, I I thought about as, as a teenager when I saw pornography... A, a video for the first time mm. i felt it's almost like my brain had been poisoned i don't know if i would have identified it at that time but every time i closed my eyes like so oh, it was upon brain. images would, would come in there yeah did you, did you find that sort of happened to you yes as you started researching it for the book
3: oh that's a very well the first time i saw pornography that's what happened and it's a bit like i think like if you've never watched a horror movie something else that i I haven't done is that actually your brain is so receptive so that's what happened to me I was 19 at a party and someone put on a porn video behind me and I hadn't realized so when I turned around it was just a close-up of like mashing genitals and it had so much of a it had such a big effect on me because I'd never seen it before so it seemed so brutal and psychopathic and then, and then the next day was September the 11th and so it all got mixed together in my brain because obviously that was such a kind of phallic thing, these planes flying into buildings, these two things became these like this like mush of trauma in my brain. So first when I start started watching porn and I was watching like the the tube sites like Pornhub, and if you have no history on Pornhub or any of those sites, they don't show you like horrible stuff. Like they don't show you the worst things the internet, and we all know that it's there. They show you very innocuous stuff like stepmom seduces stepson. And I don't know, I think one of the first ones I watched was like a taxi driver who always had sex with his passengers with, rather than <laughs> them paying their fare. And actually what I thought was, oh, I, it's actually quite, these things are quite like vanilla in terms of like sexual terms. It was all, I know, I know it's hard to Although it is surprising to
2: see how much step families play into it.
3: Well, I guess that's what I found so fascinating is the idea of Either power dynamics is a big part of sexual fantasy, so stuff that in real life is completely unacceptable, like sleeping with family members, uh, blood relations or not, or, like, teacher-student or babysitter, dad-driving-her-home. I thought that people enjoy the experience they enjoy the idea of it in a fantasy world because it's illicit. That is part of sexuality. And so that that's why I suddenly realised it was much more complicated because people might have fantasies that make them feel like a bad person unless we talk more about sex and masturbation and pornography in a way which isn't just stop watching it, it's taking advantage of people. Well,
2: um, I, I definitely want to talk more about that. I, I, I just want to sort of... Just carry on framing what what the book is and and um, you know so how how you've written it like the one of the first things I'm struck by and and this applied to your last book as well is just how dense it is in terms of the amount of research yeah. and then the 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 way that it's punctuated with jokes or funny not that the funny ever feels like it shouldn't be in there Mm. um is is that something you're conscious of oh people think of me this way they they used to be making them laugh so I've I've got to give them you know every paragraph every other sentence a a, a little bit of something
3: I think like most people who have been drawn to comedy but actually not Exclusive to that, lots of people have this in real life. I feel uncomfortable being too serious for too long. I actually feel a bit embarrassed when I'm being very earnest or very, you know, if I'm, if I feel I'm being lectury or I'm just actually going, here's my opinion, here's my objective or subjective truth. I always want to uh, kind of um, undermine it a little bit. And so, and I think the beautiful thing about jokes is choosing when you do use them and then choosing when not to like just less and, and that's something you can do in books that you can't do in stand-up you can't just go and actually i'm just going to leave that there without a joke i just wanted well, to say it i think it's go to home. your
2: credit that you understand that you can't do that in stand-up because i'm not sure it's common to everybody in your profession
3: oh it really is the audience will be outside stage door going why are we agitated we're supposed to have had <laughs> a nice cathartic laugh and and just just on
2: that, like just I mean, I, I really, you know, as I've told you before, I love love your stand up. I think it's so good. And and what what is the trick? Because you're presenting a lot of information and often some kind of thesis as well. What is the trick? And you do it so well in the book. What is the trick to doing that without it seeming preachy at all?
3: I would say it's the layers of drafts, right? Because the first time you write something, it quite often is very preachy. When I first started doing hours, the two stand-ups I most liked to watch previewing their shows were Josie Long and Bridget Christie. And the reason was because in the month before Edinburgh, they absolutely transformed. And both of them always had an agenda of what they wanted to say. And the last thing they added was the humour and the jokes. So actually, if you saw a preview three or four weeks beforehand in a pub, you'd kind of go, I mean, it's amazing what they're saying. But, I mean, it was hard going. Or And then you watch them in Edinburgh, especially like Bridget's feminism show. The reason it was so brilliant is because it was absolutely packed with comedy, but underneath it was this strong framework of what she was communicating. And a book's a bit like that, where first of all, work out what you want to say. And then afterwards, you can add in the the other flavours, including humour. But you have to know what you're going to say first. Otherwise, no one's going to stay with you through an argument if they do, if you don't know what you're saying.
1: Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage.
2: Let's talk about some of the um, specifics, uh, specific things you write about in the book. Uh, now, early on, you this is interesting. You talk about the contrast between all the stuff that came up in the run up to the twenty sixteen presidential election with with Donald Trump and grab them by the pussy mm. and, and and about how that fails to stop him being elected, and contrast that with Neil Kinnock sort of. Oh, yeah, you know, falling the,
3: over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because obviously a third of the book is about power. That for me was such an interesting parallel. I, it was it was listening to someone, I think it was Naomi Klein. I know it was Naomi Klein talking on a podcast about Donald Trump. And um, obviously because she'd written about brands in No Logo, how, what she really understands is that, you know that kind of saying about how no publicity is bad publicity? She was comparing Donald Trump to Marmite because she said, the amazing Marmite campaign about how some people hate Marmites made Marmite stronger. It didn't, it didn't do away with, it didn't halve their sales as people realised, yeah, I don't even like it. And she was saying that about Donald Trump. Um, she, she was explaining that his background is in wrestling, where a, a baddie gets stronger, and you can't fight a baddie by saying, well, actually, they're bad. You need a goodie who's equally strong. She said all of the criticism just feeds into him and makes him stronger. And then she had this thing about the grabbing by the pussy was a demonstration of how powerful he is. People are really used to like powerful men. Again, I'm putting it in quotation marks, powerful men transgressing sexually in all different kinds of ways. And people imagine that it's harmless. Like, um, you, I don't know if you've read it yet, but um, Curtis Sittenfeld's novel, um Uh, Rodham about what would would have happened if Hillary Clinton hadn't married Bill Clinton. And it's so interesting because when in the, in the novel, when Bill Clinton is first accused of forcing himself on a woman, lots and lots of women, because in this book, he's a bit more of a player. He becomes a tech billionaire and he has all these marriages because he's not with Hillary. And lots of women are like, Oh, I wouldn't mind getting molested by him. And I think there's an element where people kind of think it's a joke because the celebrity, is, cart- is, is a cartoon. No one thinks that they're real. And actually, for that real person in the room with them, there is no... It's not a fun, silly thing that happens to them. But people have an idea that it's not that serious. I don't think people thought the grabbing by the pussy thing was that serious.
2: But one thing I really enjoyed about the book is, is that... You, you mentioned it uh, earlier. Is that, that you, you find... I don't know if calling them inconvenient truths... Mm. is the right thing but because you're looking at it very much on a on a a, a biological and anthropological level you, you find some things that don't necessarily uh fit in with the way that we as good liberals mm. want to see the world and i, th- I can't I can't remember exactly when you mentioned it but you, you mentioned uh you know some battle-worn feminist you know tearing a hair out with you at uh, maybe a book reading or, or a gig oh, yeah. because you um you know you start talking about hormones and and behavior yeah. being influenced,
3: yes, it's very unfashionable and um and the, and some people it's, it's very unfashionable because it's um it's not prescriptive, so it's not like human beings do this because x happened or y happened and 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 then what and then what people find it is uh either reductive as in don't you dare tell me. I'm a, an ape who's doing things for evolved reasons. Or they go, how unhelpful it is to the world.
2: In, in a more personal way, I think something you se- seem to, I hate using the word journey, but like a journey you go, go on is understanding male behaviour that, that you have experienced in, in your life, in family and relationships, just mm. moving through life as a woman understanding if not forgiving that through the prism of biology
3: yeah it is it's trying to understand things and but then i think that's what life is anyway i think that's like that's why we read fiction that's why we watch tv programs all the time the most satisfying thing is trying to understand what's going on in someone else's head and why they do certain things um i think even in sex power money where i i feel like oh i'm really learning to forgive male behaviour, I still had um, some quite upset male readers who go, well, how dare you expect this of me or say this? And I felt like I was kind of really trying to premise it with like, oh, I know that because of some of my experiences, I came to this book quite sexist about men. I could be quite dismissive of men or, again, reductive about their behaviour. I, what, I, I, what I was trying to do is understand it without saying that all men do it because actually... It's such a small amount of men, for instance, who like would flash or would like go up to a stranger at a bus stop and and start hassling them for a conversation. It's such a small amount of men. And it's not fair to go, God, men, just keep it in your pants. Let's live our lives.
2: (laughs) So I'm I'm interested that you've got men who've taken time to read the book and then take umbrage at it. I understand people coming at you if they've seen you on a a, a podcast. panel show i mean i'm not saying i understand it but that that makes more sense to me well
3: you do like you do and actually it's quite a very small minority and you do wonder if they have actually read it or if they've just read a a section of it or they've heard about it i did um i had a a short section of it serialized in the times and that's actually where most of it came from so for instance and i'll give you an idea jeff because you know what the internet's like so you've experienced it yourself firsthand but what i'd have is um, from that Times article, I had a lot of men saying, you're so ugly, no one would harass you, stop lying. And so and actually, and I realised, oh, something about the fact that women talk about this really touches a nerve with them. And it must come from a place where they haven't seen it or they think we make it up or they think, yeah, it would only happen to supermodels. It wouldn't happen to normal women. And um, or oh, I just think oh, they just want an excuse to write a nasty thing to you, because that's also part of it is sometimes people just want to find a thing to say.
2: We would we would did an episode on you know some some online behaviours and and how you tackle hate online a while ago and you know, some something that that got me thinking about I think Ed mentioned it in the episode was was that level of hate or whatever that need to get that bile mm. out was that always there or has the the accessibility of people like yourself and politicians yeah. and, and so on mm. on the internet has has. As as that sort of as it festered because of that in some way,
3: I think it was always there. I think I think what's odd is what's odd is that the actual person reads it sometimes. But do you remember Jeff in the nineties and and the two thousands? There used to be a thing that if you went to a pub and you'd ever been on telly, some guy would come up to you go, "He reckons you're a comedian." (laughs) <laughs> I don't know you. I don't know you. Who are you? Why don't I yeah. be funny then if you're a comedian? Yeah. He says, and the mate who said it doesn't like you either. What's happened is you've come in and he's gone, I saw her on that thing. And then they don't believe it. And then they have no respect for you. It's so rude. And I just think that's what the internet is now. They're going, oh, were well, you on telly? You think you're a bit special, do you? Think you're magic?
2: I know you you touched on this, but let's talk about it a bit more. Where When you started writing the book and porn was going to be this big element of it where your attitude was towards it at that time and where you've ended up and how you got there
3: well I think morally I haven't had that big of a journey I still think I'm quite a prude I still think there's lots of situations where porn in terms of individuals can be damaging and I don't necessarily I mean in terms of relationships I think there can be jealousy issues I think there can be privacy issues I think we haven't we haven't yet learned to really uh, have really good dialogues with our partners about what arouses them that isn't us, those kind of things, if we're monogamous. So we were all lied to about relationships. We were told that you'd meet a person and that is the person that you'd be attracted to and that would be the most beautiful thing in the world. But sexuality goes out in lots of directions. So it might physically only um, be between yourself and one other person for a long period of time, but that doesn't mean what you think about, what you get turned on by is only ever going towards them. What, what really changed is I suddenly, I think I understood the economics of porn more. I think that people should pay for the porn that they watch. And I think they should be better consumers of it. And I think by doing that, you actually get rid of a lot of those problems that you're worried about going on in terms of coercion. I think the fact that people think they should get porn for free is really problematic. And I think it's really connected to shame. So that was for me. And I didn't know that's what I was going to end up with. It's like, oh, it's all economic, like everything. We live in a capitalist society and people should be paid for the work that they do.
2: You you mentioned um, sort of morality and and I know that was something that you sort of wrestled with, with your attitudes to not just pornography, but um, sex work. Oh, yeah. Talk to me about because sort of, uh, I, I know a lot of the conversations you had mm. researching the book and in the book uh, were, were about the subject. Where, where do you think you are on that now?
3: Well, the first thing that I realized, and it might be true for a lot of your listeners as well is that I realized that everything i 'd ever heard about sex work had never been from a sex worker um, i'd heard some i 'd read some things like that were from an ex sex worker so but but in terms of it, someone who is actually how they earn money now. I'd never I'd never listened. And I think that's one of the things that can be very, even with the Internet and and podcasts and all of the different varieties that we can absorb other people's truths. I had never, ever had that experience. So my first thing was that, again, it's really economic. Let's say you're trying to protect somebody or, you know, for instance, you know, there's awful things, you know, that sex workers are murdered at a much higher rate than anyone else in society. So you think that they're vulnerable. You think they're vulnerable because um, they might be exploited by um, a trafficker or they might be exploited um, because they are um, very, very... They're, they're vulnerable because they're poor. You know, like, there was horrible things that I was researching, like sex for rent, where men advertise and they advertise for women to live with them, but they pay their rent by having sex with them twice a week and things like that, which is something which, which doesn't feel like a, a choice, does it? It doesn't feel like sex work. It feels like there's someone who is desperate or in some situations could be desperate. Um, and what I realised, all of those things come down to money. Like, you, you can't say, I, I think that I'm going to put all of the people who do that, all the men who do that in prison, that doesn't solve the problem of like, where's that woman going to live? And and how is she? So so everything kept coming back to the same thing. And I realised that a lot of my moral opinions when I spoke to sex workers were incredibly patronising. So I talk about this a lot, but the very first person I spoke to, I'd spoken to her just after I'd read an online article shared on Facebook about how in Sweden, they were doing an exit strategy, um, which is where um, sex workers were going to work in old people's homes. And the article said it's so amazing because sex workers aren't grossed out by the human body. So they're actually wonderful nurses for older people. And I told her this, like, guess what? I've solved it. Exit strategy, old people's home. And she was like, do you know how patronising that is? I, I earn £200 an hour. Am I going to earn that in the old people's home? I was like, oh, I, I don't know what they're paying people. And she said, you just offered me a job at £7 an hour. And I was like, OK. And then she explained. She was she was very kind. She wasn't actually... Um, being aggressive, but she was politely dealing with a stupid person, me. She explained that um, she earns £200 an hour, which means she can, she can take on three clients. Um, she has three clients who are regulars who she'll see a couple of times a month and that's enough for her to pay her rent and live on. And so she was explaining that and she goes, now talk to me again about an exit strategy. And so you go, oh, we're having a money conversation, not a sex conversation. Um, and, so, and so that was the biggest change for me.
2: And and how do you get around the fact that there isn't a sort of a monolithic experience of a, a, a sex worker and that, you know, somebody you, – you, you're writing a book, there's only a, a, a fairly finite number of people you will have the time and resource yeah. to talk to. And it's this subject around which there's a lot of stigma.
3: Well, that's it. So the stigma, from all the different directions – only makes people 's lives worse that stigma doesn 't help anybody it doesn 't actually put anyone off from becoming a sex worker. It actually makes them more vulnerable more dangerous. Laws that try and make sex work um, more difficult always push sex workers into having um, being more more vulnerable because their um, punters are scared of being caught so there's all these things that i didn 't understand when i um, so I did a podcast series for the um, hardback and I'll do an- I'm will do i doing another one for the paperback. Because what I realised actually was that I couldn't talk on anyone's behalf. All I wanted to do was platform certain people that when I met them, I found their take so interesting and I didn't want to transcribe it and put it in my book like it was mine. I just thought, I just want you to talk for yourself. Because that's what I realised is you can't solve it. You just have to have a much, much bigger conversation. Because I really, really thought I was educated on these topics. I really thought like... And then I realised, oh, I, I'm so <laughs> I'm so ignorant. And, like, I did feminism in my degree. I really thought I'd covered these topics. And so people can be very well-meaning and very ignorant, really. And,
2: and you know, because you are a, a strong feminist voice in, in the conversation through your books, through your act, d- did you find that the the, the book was in any way controversial in the context of uh, the feminist conversation?
3: Well, actually, one of the things that happened with the podcast is um, I, some of the people I read are anti-pornography feminists. And there was, um, and I asked, People to come and talk to me on the podcast because then I thought I'll have a range like one of the people I'm talking to is a woman who um, is a director of porn and then I'll talk to an anti-pornography and not because I wanted to debate her because the majority of things she says I completely agree with like in my heart and soul I believe like I can't help it in my body I'm like oh but it must be horrible it must be horrible to have to have sex with someone for money but that's a really unuseful thing for me to think for anyone's life but I absolutely so I absolutely like agree with her and she wouldn't come and talk to me when she she got sent a copy of the book and cancelled it and said no, and then we asked some other people, and they all said no, and then I realized well there's this is the thing about a binary argument like pushing someone into but it's a gray area isn't it is not helpful like uh, it's very similar with what's going on actually in terms of debating um trans women's rights, and I don't think it should be a debate because essentially you're saying some people shouldn't have human rights but the discussion is so complicated it's complicated by people saying things that seem very empathetical is that the right word they seem to be really reasonable and that's why trans women shouldn't be allowed in the toilets and that's why refugees have to be and 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 they're proposed as in full of heart and kindness and then other people don't understand why it seems like a sector of the internet are going, shut that person down, they're saying such a dangerous thing, but it's they're they're defending women in refuges, how can that be the enemy? And it's a very similar thing going on, but actually it's a much longer discussion than a tweet, how we support sex workers better, while also being anti-trafficking and anti-exploitation and all of those things. It's like you can do those both things. I should
2: let you go. Before I do, um, just a, a couple of things. I'd noticed that you know we, we, we know each other a bit in real life, and I've talked to you in this context. I saw
3: you in the park the other day. I did Jeff. see me
2: in the park the other day? Um,
3: How's Gene getting on with his bicycle?
2: He's completely able to cycle now. I think it's weird. Oh, he's four. At like, what age yeah. did you learn to ride a bike?
3: I'm oh, much older than that, but I didn't have a bike. I'm not a sub story. <laughs> I didn't have a bike till I was 25. But no, I think I learned it around um, seven or eight. I got yeah, I'm the but these kids are yeah. all
2: four and they're learning that. It's very strange to me. Yeah. Um, but there were a couple of things as I was reading up, you know, the book and, and some of the interviews you've done around it that I, I didn't know about you that I wanted to, to ask about. The first one is you are a diary keeper, a habitual diary keeper.
3: Oh, I used to be. When I started stand-up, I used to be up until about, I'd say, eight years ago. I still have a thing. Do you know, like, the artist's way? I still sometimes do pages, which is a bit like a diary. Um, but which I is a thing that it.
2: creative people do to, to splurge stuff out to get started, right? Yeah, it's
3: a, it's a mind dump or something, but I, it's a very useful way for anyone who either... I think I described it to my um, to my husband like a... It's like a massage where you find where the knots are in your brain. You got oh, you've got a bit there. So pages is spontaneous writing. And it's the most useful thing. I've never done the artist's way, but because I've had friends who've done it, um, if you're feeling creatively blocked, of course, quite often that can be emotional. But it's just speed writing. where You don't edit yourself and it doesn't mean anything. And it comes out quite a lot like a diary. You often start with, I'm sitting here. The sun is shining. I had a cup of tea. I feel awful. So sad. Should have a bath. Washing up. like and it starts off with like that. Yeah. But I always, always kept a diary from being a child. And then I think that's where stand-up happened, was that stand-up became my diary. And right. that's why my stand-up's so confessional, is that the things I was writing down and going on, rather than me just dear diarying them, I then had like a, Hey, Balam, how you all doing? My boyfriend jumped <laughs> me. <laughs> I fancy Stuart. He hasn't texted me back.
2: <laughs> and, and then the other thing, and I couldn't believe this hadn't come up before, is, is you had worked as a backing singer for Robbie Williams' dad. Yeah. Now, I mean, this must have been, because of how old you are, this must have been Robbie Williams' dad having a, a, a crack at a revived show business career off the back of Robbie's fame, oh, right?
3: Well, I wouldn't say that. So it's really interesting, actually. So Pete Conway it was always a singer. He, so he's always a singer. That's why Robbie is a singer. And so it wasn't in any way like a stab at success. We all worked in a, a Warner Holidays hotel, which is um, for older people. Do you know the hotel chain? It's for over 50s. It's cruise style dining and entertainment, but Uh, you don't have to leave. And then, yeah, we had guest entertainers, and every day they got like a cabaret show, which is what Uh, I was doing. Oh, okay. I I
2: was imagining he was sort of having a second crack of the whip because of uh, renewed interest in his. So well, actually,
3: it was so sweet because every time the guests changed over, you watched the same rumour go through the hotel as someone found out he's only Robbie Williams' dad <laughs> and then passing it all around. And within three days, he was getting people coming up going, just tell him I love angels. I'm going to have it played at my funeral. I think it's beautiful. I think he's... Tell- Guy Chambers is the brains, but I'd tell him... <laughs>
2: sarah it's uh, it's always like just a joy to chat to you uh the the book is tremendous and now that it's in paperback
3: oh so to, handy so much so more handy. comfortable
2: physically comfortable to read uh the book is sex power money sarah pascoe thank you so much
3: thanks so much Bye bye